Osio, and welcome to Real Indigenous. Today we are talking and chatting with Oscar Hokia. He is the author of Calling for a Blanket Dance. And with me tonight are is uh, one of our usual hosts. Hi, it's Angela. And if you want to say hello, Oscar. Hello, it's Oscar Hokia here. Super excited to, to be here on Real Indigenous Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Oscar Hokia holds an uh, an MA in English from the University of Oklahoma with a concentration in Native American literature. He also holds a BFA in creative writing from the Institute of American Indian Arts with a minor in Indigenous Liberal Studies. He has won the 2023 Penn and Hemingway Award. He is a recipient of the Truman Capote Scholarship Award through IAIA and a winner of the Native Writer Award through the Taos Summer Writers Conference. He has also written for Poets and Writers, Literary Hub, World Literature Today, American Short Fiction, and he's written elsewhere. And so we're very excited to have him on our podcast this evening to do one of our special book talk editions where we talk about all those things on your screen and everything, including books, in between. And so I would like to start with saying I legitimately loved calling for a blanket dance and I didn't think I would. <laughs> and this is why I have a hesitancy sometimes in coming to sometimes native books and native films when I feel like they're going to be about the drama. They're going to rip me open and I'm going to see things that I don't want to see or they're going to, you know, or I'm going to get frustrated with my reading experience. But that was not the case with calling for a blanket dance. And I, we, Roy and I, my husband and I, we've had this conversation that we feel that it is one of the most native books I think we've ever read. And so what I'd like to talk about, or I would love for you to talk a little bit about uh, some of the imagery that you pull from, of course, something that connects me and plugs me in instantly is space, location, and relationship to these towns, these Oklahoma towns, Lawton mm -hmm. and Tahlequah, obviously, and Anadarko. And um, I want to, like, I love how you paint these towns. And I wondered if you would talk a little bit about the imagery of, you paint it so well, like, you ov you've obviously lived there. You didn't just visit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Yeah, no, thank you. Away. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Thank you, Candice. That's very... Very nice, very generous, what you said, and I'm very grateful um, for um, your and Roy's perspective on the book. And um, and I definitely wanted to to write something that felt um, genuine and just real and that's honest about, you know, like Native communities and and what we encounter. And so, the, you know, like the landscapes that, you know, those were very important to me to, you know, in Oklahoma, we have, you know, 39 different tribes. And so be, I wanted to capture those subtle differences that I recognized growing up because I'm Kaiwan Cherokee, like the main character. And so I moved between Tahlequah and Lawton, just like the main character. So I'm drawing on personal experiences. And so those of us, you know, who grow up here in Oklahoma, we know, you know, there's multiple different tribes and um, every community, even within Cherokee Nation, you know, like, you know, Stillwell people are different from bunch people, you know what I mean? And we talk like that. And so I want to, you know, I wanted to capture that essence of um, that we, those of us who are on the res understand what the, what those, those subtleties are. And so for me, it was a lot of it had to do with capturing 
not just kind of major iconic things in the area. So like not just the Illinois River, but like the Bill Willis Skill Center, because that's a that's a place that a lot of community members have gone through um, the Bill Willis Skill Center. My mother went through it. My oldest um, sister went through the through the LPN classes over there when she was starting her nursing career. And um, and even I took some classes when I was a teenager, just some kind of random classes there. But just, so those are um, elements that I wanted to capture, you know, like the kind of um, someone who was who was raised in Tahlequah would be like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. I know exactly where he's talking about. Um, you know, I've been there. Um, I wanted to have if I could satisfy those readers, that's what I was really aiming for. You know, and similarly with Lawton, Oklahoma as well. You know, the Kiowa side of my family, Kiowa, the Kiowa Comanche mix, but the majority of them are all in Lawton. So I know a lot intimately. You know, I've lived there at different points in my own life. I go back there often to visit. And um, and there were just certain subtle things like Maddie Bell Park. If you're from from that area, you know what Maddie Bell Park. And if I say the view and you're from the Lawton, you'll know exactly what part of town I'm talking about when I say the view. There are certain things like that, just subtle locations in that space that people from the community would recognize and so I was um interested in capturing that so that it would have that kind of genuine genuine feel um, and so it, it and a lot of it has to do with with those subtleties you know like you know picking up on the small things and the way we talk and the way we say things like um you know mentioning the different communities you know whether we say Stillwell or Vianne or wherever it might be um, but there's these small communities that are filled with Cherokees and people don't even in northeastern part of Oklahoma. There are areas where there's a there's a ton of Cherokees and you wouldn't even know they were there. You know what I mean? You might be driving through that community and you might not realize that there is a whole, you know, a massive community of Cherokees living way out in around Spavanaugh and places like that, you know. Um, so I wanted to bring attention to those elements because I knew people who grew up in this area would would recognize it and resonate with it. But I think it also speaks to to the way natives, you know, universally kind of look at their own community in these small kind of ways. Like there are these little um, pockets of people in different areas around them. And so I talk in the book and I, you know, describe things in the book in a very similar way that maybe other natives might do so in their community. So I felt like it would resonate. And that's the reason why um, I made those, those kind of choices in the book. Hey, Monica. Well, uh, I think you, I think you really succeeded because Roy and I were both trying to parse out like, what do you think this is? What do you think that is? Who do you think that is? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course you referenced mm -hmm. the families and I appreciate that there's a, there's a mix of, um, real family names. I, I, mm -hmm. you know, I like yeah, real family names and yeah. um, yeah, these places and spaces that we have a connection to, and we have a specific relationship to, and there's a, there's um an association that goes with certain parts of those towns and certain communities. And so I was uh, super thrilled to find that. And another, another aspect kind of building on that, like you mentioned uh, something that connects me instantly. And um. I don't feel I've read a whole, maybe I just haven't been exposed to that or haven't read it yet. I don't feel like I've read a whole lot of native literature that really taps into the intertribal mm -hmm. family experience because, you know, I'm Cherokee Quapaw and Osage. So yes, mm -hmm. I, I know Tahlequah intimately, 
and know it in a certain way. And I have a relationship with Pahaska and I have a relationship mm-hmm. with Miami. You know, we go up there for our summer ceremonials and our, and our powwows. And um, I don't think I've quite read a book or seen a movie that quite captures that all in one family, this idea that this is home and you know that mm-hmm. intimately, but the other place is also home too, because mm-hmm. you, you have your family members up there. And uh, that was something that I just. Yeah, I think that that was that was another thing that I felt was missing from Native literature is Mm -hmm. the intertribal element. And for me, it did like, you know, like for those of us in Oklahoma, all of us in Oklahoma, we know that, you know, like I said before, just multiple tribes and we, we all know someone from different tribes. We're all, you know, many of us are from multiple tribes ourselves. Um, So it was just a, just a way of life from, for us. And I just felt like, you know, I was seeing, you know, like reservation specific stuff was out there, but it was all from one single tribe as opposed, and then there might be mentions of other tribes here and there, but there wasn't that kind of, um, that feeling of moving back and forth between multiple tribes, you know, interacting with numerous different tribal members from different tribal communities. You know, like I didn't feel like that kind of intertribal, a multicultural feeling of intertribalism was missing. And so, you know, sometimes when I do describe my writing, I do describe it as multicultural, not only because, you know, like in this part of Oklahoma, you know, the reservation is very checkerboard. So we have individuals from different ethnic backgrounds, you know, like I'm half Mexican. My father was from Mexico. Um, I have cousins who are half black. I have my my oldest three children are, are half white. So that's just a very common element for us in Oklahoma. We just take it as a given. So I wanted to capture, you know, the honesty in that kind of interracial, intertribal, multicultural dynamic. And we have a very rich um, community here. Um, and I just felt like that kind of richness was missing in Native literature. And I wanted to bring that to the page. Well, I I recognize your voice because I've listened to the audiobook twice now. And can you talk about how that process was for being able to read your own book? Yeah, so that's one of the interesting things with that is I had to audition to for my own for my own audiobook. So I think they like wow. to get they like to get professional <laughs> really? readers to read. Yeah. And wow. um and so what I did is I took that the chapter by Quentin Quitone and um and I read it like I like I read it when I when I get to read the full thing for an audience. You know, I read it like like that, you know. You know, it kind of started like, yeah, we were just little guys around a year old when Kyle started getting that hungry, you know. And so because I had that kind of tonation with it, they're like, we cannot duplicate that. You know, like there's I don't know who we're going to find who can capture that essence. And so they they, you know, they decided to go ahead and have me read for all the male chapters in the book. And then Rainy Fields, um, who is Creek and Cherokee, she read the all the female characters in the book. And so, yeah, I think it was just those, you know, hitting those nuances with the language and the vernacular is what um, sold them on allowing me to to read for it. But I did have to audition for it. I did have to record and, and email it to them. And, and then I had to wait for, I don't know how many months to hear back before I knew if I was going to do that. So it was nice to be able to to capture the subtle, the subtle differences because not only, you know, with Quentin Quitone, and, you know, his very Kyle Comanche way of saying things, but also, you know, like Hayes Shade, who's from Tahlequah. And I, and I wanted to capture 
there's kind of an like an Oklahoman element to the way Cherokees speak. And um, I wanted to make sure that subtlety got cut into the into the narration of it. And so being able to narrate the novel myself, I was able to capture those subtleties. But so what, what ended up happening is that on the uh, when they came to recording, they gave me two days. They're like, OK, we got two days to record these particular chapters and uh, we got five hours each day. Um, blocked off for you so i go to tulsa there's a little shop up in tulsa that you know records and stuff um and i ask them so is, can i do these specific characters on this day and then these other characters on this day so what i did is i divvied up the kiowa you know kiowa comanche characters that were leaning more kiowa Comanche, and the characters that were more cherokee on the other day um so when i went into that day you know, I could I could make sure I stayed on track with the with the vernacular and the way we speak, you know, the colloquial way we speak. And so that's kind of what helped me, you know, and when you hear it, because, you know, you're hearing a hey shade comes up. I know Vincent Gima saddle comes up first, a very Kiowa kind of way of speaking. And then hey shade follows him right after. And a part of what helped with that was that I divvied it up like that and I recorded it on two separate days. Well, yeah, I was like being at any powwow that I've ever been to to listen mm -hmm. to all of those subtleties and it was yeah. just if you get a chance to listen to the audiobook by all means please do because it just it brings so much more me I mean the whole Vincent chapter oh. was just oh my gosh yeah that is yeah. just so one oh, thing that I that I love doing with my with my writing and my characters is that I love the intersection I love the intersection of emotions so i'm not just thinking about like i want to i want to bring hope you know like i don't want to just think in just that one lean that one singular way of thinking i think that how can i show hope and also show an element of heartbreak together and so because i mix these emotions together then it just like oh my goodness it makes it even more intense you know it just amplifies both the hope and and the and the heartache so but yeah so i tend to i tend to do that quite a bit and yeah when he when he's like the kids are wearing him slick in the truck uh, mm -hmm. i laugh and then by the end of that story i'm like crying in my car i was like oh my gosh he finished it and I, was just like, oh. yeah. <laughs> I think i text the group and said i can't believe i'm just crying and now i'm laughing and I was out walking my dog listening to it, you know, and I probably look like a crazy person because <laughs> I was just, I mean, and then at one point I just had to stop. I couldn't walk anymore. I had to listen to what was going on. It's so all encompassing. I'm not from Oklahoma. I'm not from an Oklahoma tribe. And I can't, I don't even know how to, like every single person on this planet needs to read this book. It was, it was incredible. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I had a it good was. friend, a good friend of mine who's, uh, we went to um, OU together in the um, master's program over there and um, in the English department. And um, he read the book and he, and he said that he was walking through Walmart and he just started break. He just broke down out of nowhere and just started crying. And he, and he texted, but he, he, he texted me while he was in Walmart crying. He was angry at me. Why did you make me cry in the middle of Walmart? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I didn't I didn't find myself getting angry. I was I mean, maybe angry like is this the only book he's written or, or there there better be like 700 more books hmm. that I can read. Uh, <laughs> that was 
was the first one. <laughs> but no, I am working. I am working on the next one, and so I'm on. Rev I'm in revision process right now. So I wrote the the second one on the first draft of that back in 2015. So in between, like when I would hand the first the calling for a blank to my agent or my editor while they had the book, I was working on book two. Um, Is it the same characters or? It's not the same characters. Um, it's a completely different setup, different storyline. Um, it does do the the Tahlequah, um, Lawton, Kiowa, Cherokee thing. It does do that. And it does lean on adults who work with youth. I've been working with youth for almost 20 years now. And I started back in 2004 in a group home. It's an all-native group home. And it was in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And the youth there were all... Um, Dene, Apache, and Pueblo youth. And we had a couple of ton of autumn kids from Arizona too. And so I've been working, I've been working with youth for a very long time. And so whenever I write my characters, I tend to write about adults trying to steer youth in the right direction, um, which in essence is what the whole calling for a blanket dance is about, is about all these adults kind of stepping in and saying, hey, let me try to, let me try to get you on the right path to ever give me settle. Um, and, um, so the second book does it does that kind of adults working with youth, working in the community, trying to help the community kind of decolonization type of work, um, healing work for the community. Um, but I do I do like to write on that theme. So I'll probably, you know, keep doing that probably for a while. Can you tell us how long this whole process has been for you, just to give people an idea that you don't have to write that novel in one week? So what the calling for a blanket dance i wrote the oldest chapter back in 2008 and so um quentin quitone's chapter 2008 and hayes shade chapter in 2009 and then they were published as independent short stories quentin quito's chapter was uh, it was originally titled got per cap but then i changed it to um our day our day and that was in American short fiction and then so hey shade chapter was titled time like masks and that was published in South Dakota review so way back then in 2010 2011 and so so that's when I first start writing this character this this one character uh, these different stories around this one character and so I wrote you know those those two chapters which are very different it's very like I went for my Kiowa voice got Quentin Quitone went for my Cherokee voice got hey shade and so you know, I accomplished what I would, what wanted to accomplish at that time, but I still wasn't sure if that was the direction I should be writing in. Like, because when you're first starting out, you're just so uncertain, you know, like, I think I'm going in the right direction. I think I'm doing well. And you're just not, you're not sure. And other people will tell you like, yeah, this is really good. You're doing a really good job. And, um, but it's really hard. You know, you, you tend to be really hard on yourself. And so, so I hit, so whenever about 2010, when I got accepted to OU, I hit a writer's block and I was just unsure if I was doing the right thing. So I couldn't write creative fiction. I could write critical writing. So when I went to OU, it was an MA in English. And so it was critical writing. It was like writing essays, academic essays. And um, I could do that just fine. It was just the creative stuff I couldn't, I couldn't do. So I didn't write anything from 2010 to 2012. And then after I graduated from OU, I started writing again. I was like, well, I'm going to start trying this again. And then slowly but surely until 2013, I had come up with what I would call like a collection in stories. Um, so they were just different stories. And at that time, that that particular set was more like a comparison between a mother and a son. So I had developed that and then I started to send that out to agents, but I wasn't getting any takers. And so I kind of lost, I lost my confidence again. 
so 2013 to 2015, I again, I, writer's block, I couldn't write at all, didn't write for two more years. And then 2015 came and I was fine. I finally like went, okay, well, I'm not going to write on that anymore. I'm just going to write a completely different, something completely different. And so I wrote a first draft in 2015 of another book. And after I finished that book, when you when I finished something, I set it aside and then I work on something else and just kind of let it rest. So I set that book aside and then I picked back up this novel and stories that I had been working on. And I decided that because it didn't work out, like agents weren't taking it, I'm just going to tear it apart. And so what I did is I start pulling chapters out. I started adding new stuff in. And then that's whenever, you know, ever Gima Saddle is born. That's when I start to see the arc. And I start to see like, okay, he's getting more and more aggressive. His family's trying to steer him on the right path. Um, that's where I start to decide, okay, this is going to be polyvocal. Every chapter is going to be a different family member. So around 2015 to 16, well, actually it was 16 to 17 is when I was adding stuff in and making all these choices and these decisions. And then in 2018, 2013, 2018, that's five years, five years of time before I could get the confidence to to pitch to an agent again, because I had, you know, not been successful. And I was like, I don't, maybe I don't know what I'm doing. And so I just was defeated. And so five years later, I, I get the confidence again to, to try to give it a shot. And I was like, okay, well, I'm, I heard of this um, on Twitter, which was called Twitter at the time. Now it was called X, but you know, um, but Twitter had this, they had, they still have these pitch events, these pitching events where you find this for every genre of writing. So there's like a horror pitch event, mystery pitch event. There's all these pitch events, but there's one called DV pit and it's diverse voices pitch event. And so on this specific day, what you do is you send out this tweet sized pitch. And so, and you hashtag DV pit on it. And so what that on that day, all, all the agents are looking at all these pitches and they're reading through them. And if they like them, they click like on it. And if you get a click, then that means you need to send them your manuscripts or your, your man a partial of your man or whatever it is they, that they want um so i had five different agents from different agencies in new york and and san francisco california area and um so i was you know on that day i pitched and then and then eventually i, I worked out with my current agent now ali levick of writer's house and um, so that's how we connected in 2018 and so 2018 comes i have a manuscript that's about fifty thousand words and so once I get it, then my agent, you know, she reads it. And so this was around November when we first start, you know, we, we sign contracts and we start working together. And then I want to say sometime in December, we have a conversation and she goes, well, Oscar, I'm, I'm going to need you to add 30,000 more words. And so it took me, you know, so how many years to get 50,000 words. And then I had to add 30,000 more. And so I remember that I remember being you know, on the inside, I just died a little bit, you know, I mean, like, it's a lot of words, but, you know, <laughs> you know, to, with my agent, I was like, yep, I'll do it. I'll, you know, I can, I can do it, you know, like, because I had gone so long without getting any, any ground, you know, so many years without any progress that whenever I finally got the chance to, to get in the arena, even, even close to the arena, I was like, you know, had so much energy. And so between January and March, I wrote 30,000 words. And so this is this is when Vincent Gima Saddle is born. Opti Gima Saddle, she's born then, during that time. Uh, Lonnie Nowater and with um, Sissy's chapter um, is born at that point. Leander Chesna mm -hmm. comes in. 
so there's a, like some major figure like now you know adding them in definitely rounded out that she was right you know she was right that we needed a bigger cast of people talking about this character so yeah and so 2018 2019 i add those in we worked together 2019 back and forth editing cutting adding you know that kind of stuff moving stuff around i remember that first chapter i revised that thing so many pulled it put it this way and put it that way and you know it was non-linear then it was linear so we get to about january 2020 and we start talking about okay i think we're getting close to time where we can start pitching this to editors you know to the publishing companies and then so we do a, a couple more edits probably through through february and then probably about mid-February, we send it, we send out, you know, the book to all these, all these publishing houses. And, and then March 2020 happens and COVID hits, you know what I mean? And so it, um, the, what the lucky thing about it was that in March is right whenever we're all shutting down, we're all going to the house, you know, we can't go out no more. I get, I'm starting, I'm starting to talk with a couple of different publishing houses and then we ended up going with Algonquin Books because they gave me a two book deal. And so we made the choice that, that we were like, hey, we're going to go with Algonquin. But I didn't sign any contracts until I want to say, I don't know if it was maybe July, August, like months, months later, because everything had shut down, everything slowed down. So I really didn't have contact with hardly anyone for all those months. And so it wasn't until yeah, I want to say September, around September 2020 is whenever I started working with Kathy Paris, the editor. And um, and then I signed the contract, I want to say July, August, something like that. And so then Kathy and I start working for the next year. And it's everything's slowed down, you know, it's we're in the middle of the pandemic. So it takes a full year of back and forth with me and Kathy. And then so then it becomes 2021. And then we decide, okay, well, now we know a date. It's going to come out July 26, 2022. And we're coming down to the last, this is the last edits. Um, you know, they send me, they email me the, the last, this is this is the final look. After you take a look at this and you send it back to us, it's done. You don't get to look at it ever again. I mean, you can look at it, but you're not changing nothing. Um, so I remember it being, I want to say it had, uh, it had to be sometime in July, maybe. And it was a Monday because it was a certain book that I was really looking forward to that drops on Tuesday and all books drop on Tuesday. And so that Monday, I remember finishing it up that weekend. I finished it up and I waited. I could have sent it on Friday, but I kept it an extra weekend and uh, tweaked out, read it again. I read it like three, four or five times, just kept reading it, reading it. And then Monday came and I was like, okay, I got to send it. And I sent it off to Kathy and that was it. You know, I couldn't touch it again. And I, I, I can't even explain to you how devastated I was. Like I thought... I thought that I was going to be like excited and be like, oh, now the books, it's going off into the world and everything's worked out, you know, but I, I, I sent it, I emailed it and I was just devastated. Like I, fe I felt, I fell into like a, almost like a depressed type of state. Like that next day I woke up and I was like, I can't stay at the house. I got to go. I got to get out of here. So I jumped in my car, I drove to Tulsa. And went to a bookstore and found that book I was looking for. I was like excited about that book coming out. And so I went and got that book and I started reading and just kind of did some stuff in Tulsa. But yeah, it was kind of, it was akin to like, I have three adult adult children. 
And um, I remember my oldest son, whenever he moved out and he had his own, his own apartment, he's doing his own thing. And they, he lives out at the time he was in Santa Fe, New Mexico, but he's still living in Albuquerque now. But so I went out there to visit him. And, um, and then we had this moment where we were going to meet for breakfast, you know, that morning before I got on the road back to Oklahoma. So we met up and we had breakfast and we just talked, you know, and he's probably, 21 maybe maybe 20 and there's this moment whenever we get, we come out of the the restaurant and I'm always used to used to them being with me but we got into two separate cars and he drove off to his place and I drove toward Oklahoma and and that broke my heart you know to realize that my baby wasn't my baby anymore he was an adult and he was doing his own thing um, but that is the only thing that I could equate it to with the when the book went off to that last and final time on these well, things. Well, I do I do want to know what the quilts look like. I'm a quilter. So reading about the quilts and how they brought the family together, I'm like, I want to see the patterns. And it's not on the cover. So I grew up in a house, you know, when I was younger anyway, when I was very young, I was the, the um I had two grandmothers in the home. And I had my my mother was a single mom and I had two sisters. So I was the only boy in the house. But my my grandmothers were always in the living room and they would hand stitch quilts. Mm -hmm. And so from the ceiling, they had these boards. They had a board across this wall, uh, this length of the ceiling and, and a board across this other side, all in a big square. And they would roll it down those mm -hmm. boards and the, the quilt was on it. And so they could sit on the couch and they could watch One Life to Live and they could, you know, they could stitch, you know, <laughs> um, and so that's my that was my childhood. You know, I'd always see them in the in the living room. They're rolling down their boards, and they have the big quilt spread out in the living room. And they're you know, their soaps, General Hospital, and One Life to Live were on. And I'd sit on the couch and watch it with them. I love those those shows. Those <laughs> were some of my favorite shows. They hand stitched quilts, and that's where I got the the concept for it. My mother, who I who lives here with me, um, she all she she still hand stitched quilts. She's um, does quilts for all of her grandkids. And um, and so that's what that's where I got the grandchild quilt concept from. My mother makes has a specific pattern that she uses for her grandbabies, and each grandbaby has a different color scheme. And so my um, grandmothers used to have these patterns, right? And the, some of them were like um, maybe young girls with a dress and had like a bonnet, you know? Like yeah, I remember that. Bonnet too. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that pattern quite. They used to get those patterns quite a bit. So, but there's also like a kind of a basic kind of shape of a bird that would be on the quilts as well. And each square would have, you know, across the entire length of it would have a different bird in every square. And so that's, that's kind of where the concept of it came from. I wish I had one of those type of quilts right, right now. I mean, I have the quilt my, my mother made my, for my daughter, but I don't have, you know, with that specific pattern in it. Yeah. To hear the stories that you tell about the women is mm -hmm. just, I mean, it should contrasting your male characters with your female characters. It, to me, it just showed the heavy lift that native women do in mm -hmm. our communities and in our homes and the efforts that we go through to bring our families together and to not only survive this world, but thrive in this world. And I just, mm -hmm. that really meant a lot to me just with my own experiences, I I really appreciated showing how much we love our communities. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think growing up in a household like that, 
myself, you know, and having very strong matriarchs in my family. I think that that's the reason why, you know, um, I tend to try, I like to write like that, you know, like, a, you know, like strong female voices. And they're all, you know, like they're based off of my own family members, you know, a lot, you know, when I do write, I tend to, I tend to lean on personal experiences or maybe experiences of close friends, you know, people within the community, people close to me. And so like Turtle Gima Saddle is um, based off of my mom, like my mom. So whenever I sit down to write that character, my mother doesn't talk very much. And in a lot of ways, I'm very similar, you know, even though I've been talking, you know, pretty incessantly for a while now, but typically I don't say a whole lot. You know, my mother is the same way. She can go all day and not say 10 words. And so if I'm going to write a character, so for me like that, I feel like there's, there's a lot of, in almost every native family that I know there, there are people like that. There are family members that are like that. They're real quiet, you know, and they, they might just say a little things here and there, but how do, you know, like, how do I capture a character like that? If, you know, they're so prevalent in our, in our communities. And um, so I thought, well, she wouldn't talk. She wouldn't say it out loud. She would write it down. And so, so that's what I did is that I, I you know, I decided, well, she's going to write this down. And so whenever I was probably 10 years old, maybe 11, I'm not sure, but there was a time whenever, you know, I could, you know, in hindsight, I could, you know, that my mother was depressed. And at the time I was a kid and I didn't understand what was going on. Um, but she would spend long periods of time alone in her room with the door shut. And I would go back there and say, Hey mom, you know, what, you, you want to do this? You want to do that? You know, like she was, she would hold herself up. And, um, and then one day I remember coming out to the kitchen from my room. I was playing, probably playing video games or something. And on the table, you know, we had napkins on the table and she had written like, you know, from corner to corner, edge to edge on multiple, multiple napkins and just about how she was feeling. And I remember reading, you know, her internal thoughts and it broke my heart. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, just think of the most, you know, depressed state of a parent, you know, could, you know, and you're, you're, and you're getting insight, you're 10 years old and you're getting insight into how your, your mother's feeling. And this is someone who doesn't vocalize anything, you know, like if I need to find out what's going on, I have to pull it from her. You know, like I have to go in there and I have to ask her over and over and over again before I can get, you know, a kind of a clear picture of what's going on with her. And that's like that to the, to this day is like that. And so this person who's been quiet most of my life, all of a sudden I can see inside of her mind and I can see inside of her heart. And um, me needing to cope with that as an adult, like I have that memory, I have those emotions. So how do I cope with that? Well, I got to face it head on. I got to run toward it. I can't run away from it. And so I use that moment that I felt whenever I was a kid with the writing on the napkins and I put it inside the story and I get inside the head of my mother and I write this particular story from her perspective. Um, so that comes from real life. And that's how I tend to write as I try to find some element within my personal life that I need to face head on. And I'm looking for this kind of cathartic moment where I can kind of, where I can process and I can overcome, I can heal, you know, like I need my writing to have a certain um, value with as I engage with writing um, it has to have a certain meaning to it and I feel like if it does then it's gonna be it's worth my time I, I'm willing to engage with it if I can transform as I write and then also the reader has opportunity to transform as well if I can you know use that on put that onto the page 
But you wrote a, a cameo of yourself in the book. Yeah, yeah to a certain <laughs> extent I did. Yeah, there was, yeah, there's a lot of like those kind of intimate moments that are very much me. And there are some elements that are about Ever Gima Saddle that, that are very different in, um, so like I can relate to his anger, you know, being young and being angry, growing up poor and not having, you know, anything and uh, barely scraping to get by. Um, so I started working when I was 14 and I started paying for my own clothes, you know, feeding myself when I was 14 years old. So, you know, I, I could relate with his with his anger. Um, I think that I think Everett Gima Saddle is probably more traditional than I am. I think he's more social. You know, like he's a much more social type of person. It takes, I'm very similar to my mom where it takes a lot of energy to get me out of the house. You know, um, I think I'm very blessed in being born into the family that I'm born into because I have access to a ton of culture. Growing up, you know, it was, I didn't participate in as much stuff as I should, but my family was always, you know, they would always make me go to stuff. Um, so, you know, I did, I was able to participate and, and engage with cultural stuff. Yeah, so- there are certain things about him that are very different, but there's, you know, like the, some of his experiences are, you know, directly drawn from my personal life. Well, I, I think Monica meant that there was a little, what was it during the. Oh, okay. Oh yeah. I went off. And they got their 18 money. And oh yeah. They, okay. And so they're yeah, going to all these about. parties oh, yeah. and stuff and they run into you carrying a sack yeah. of books out of the bookstore. And they're like, we better not invite him. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just, I so related to that. Cause I was just like, yeah, I don't want to go to this party. I want to read the mama day books. And yeah. Yeah. No, I was kind of, I was a, you know, like a reservation nerd, you know, I was like, I like to read and I was the only one, only one of my cousins, you know, and I would be, so the last grade I completed was a sixth grade. And so, you know, I was really defiant and really rebellious when I was younger and, but I did, I like to read. And so that like I wouldn't go to school and I I wanted to run around and hang around with my friends, but my mom would always buy me these books, you know, cause I was always interested in reading. So she kind of kept me locked in with, with that element because it was giving me some type of an education. Um, and I think because I was able to, because I did love reading that it gave, it did give me some advantages that a lot of my peers, a lot of my cousins didn't have. And because I had, was obsessed with writing, I was like, well, if Stephen King can create this world, I can create a world too. And so I was inspired by that. And I just, you know, started writing um, a great deal. But yeah, so whenever, you know, um, in that particular chapter with Quentin Quaytone, yeah, I was kind of like the guy who was, you know, my cousins, you know, I was the youngest, me and my cousin Quincy, Quincy Tashiqua, who is loosely based off of Quentin. Quentin Quaytone is a kind of a mix of, multi, of different um, relatives and friends that I grew up with. But me and Quincy were the youngest in the family. And so, you know, like we were kind of, we were kind of goofy and silly. I had older cousins who were really rough and did, you know, crazy stuff. And so we were there, to, we were just following, we did a lot of the stuff with them, but we were just like following along. We weren't like, you know, crazy uh, people who were, um, you know, doing reckless kind of stuff. We were um, just kind of nerdy, goofy guys. But yeah, so I was, I always had a book and I was always wanting to read. And so I wanted to put that element in it, but also too, just to kind of give a signal because um, sometimes in academia, you know, they're always, they always want to, you know, there's a sense of trying to turn literature into like, um, like an artifact, you know what I mean? The, it almost feels like, to a certain extent, there's this desire to make our literature into ethnography, like I'm trying to capture this ethnic group 
you know, um, and I didn't want, I wanted to have a little bit of space in there to remind the readers that this is a work of art. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to pull you out of the narrative for one quick second. It's going to be funny. I'm going to pull you out. And then you're going to remember, okay, yeah, this is an artist creating this art. Um, he's not an ethnographer um, kind of a deal. So that's part, that was part of the reason I wanted to do that as well. But yeah, I really, I really had a lot of fun with that. Quentin Quiton was silly, you know, so it was a lot of fun to write his parts. How has the reception been? Have you had to deal with, oh, you're documenting your people or has it been like, oh no, this is a lovely piece of art? No one, yeah, no one has said that, you know, you're, you're documenting your people kind of thing. I think that what it happens, and I got this whenever I was in grad school, as I'm reading a work of art, you know, literature, and then I write about it, then in that exchange, it starts to become almost like an artifact. And that's with every, every work of art that I've, you know, had to write an essay about. Once I start writing an essay about it, then I'm making these observations about this writer is trying to say this, and this is, you know, this character is representing this in the community. You know, so it starts to become scientific in that in that exchange. But yeah, with um, just you know, like going out to the, you know, talking to people about the book and being, you know, like at readings and stuff. Yeah, no, I don't think that that's. I think that they're very very aware that it's art. Um, but I did, you know, I was like that was one element that I wanted to make sure that that was in there because in those kind of academic spaces that can start to happen. But yeah, so I think most of the recept the reception has been great. You know, like it's been really good to, to see, you know, like I got um, the Cherokee Phoenix did a, a little write up for me. And so I was happy about that. And then I got to read at the Cherokee national holiday. Um, so I was excited to do that as well. And then I read, you know, at Cameron university, which is in Lawton, Oklahoma. And then also read at the Jacobson house in Norman, as well and so i was able to read and so at the one i was at jacobson house it was an all kiowa event because they were reopening for the kiowa six and so family members from those kiowa six descendants from them were all present in the celebration of reopening the jacobson house and so it was it was nice to be able to to read quentin quiton's chapter in front of a group of kiowas and then you know like so whenever we're out there we're at the jacobson house and it's, it's like a backyard kind of a you know, an area out, a spacious little backyard area. And um, and so there's like chairs lined up, people brought their chairs and they were all, you know, listening to different speakers that day from different families of the of the Kiowa Six. And then they also had a, a drum out there and they would sing songs between those drum between the, the speaking. And I think Erica Bread was out there singing as well. So in between all of those things, you know, the drummers would would drum would would, would do a song. But when I got up there, it, you know, it was in front of, you know, everybody there was Kiowa. And um, and there I was just to, to talk about a book. Everybody else had these stories about culture and community. And and I got up there and I was like, well, I wrote this book and and I'm, I want to read a little bit for you. And then so I open it to Quentin Quiton's chapter and, um, you know, people are kind of meandering. And then I hit that first sentence that we were just little guys around a year old. And Kyle started getting that hung. Yeah. And now all those Kyle looked up. Boy, they, they all their attention just in that second, they all sort of paying attention. And then, you know, that <laughs> chapter is it's crazy, you know, like they do all kinds of reckless stuff and they, you know, do what we call a per cat party and they spend their money. And so, but, you know, as, you know, as the, as I'm reading it, 
the the drummer there's like you know some of the drummers you know they have per cap story so they start hitting on that drum and then you know hear a couple war whoops and some lulus you know and everybody's getting it becomes interactive you know so as I'm as I'm telling the the story start people start responding to me in different in their own way you know in a very Kiowa kind of way so it was very interesting to see that back and forth element play out there and then you know when I was at Cherokee National Holiday just being able to read I read Turtle Gima Saddles her chapter being able to read that, you know, it's very intimate. It was the first time I ever read it uh, for an audience. And so it was kind of emotional for me. It was great to be able to read a very Tahlequah, Cherokee-centric story or chapter to people who were Cherokee identified with the community on a day when we're supposed to celebrate being Cherokee from this community. But yeah, those kind of moments or, you know, like I cherish, those are the, those are what I remember most. You know, I've been to a lot of different places to read, you know, Seattle, New York, Miami, and seen a lot of great, had a lot of great things, had the, the novel was on this um, six story billboard, the uh, Amazon billboard, um, which is six stories high. But the thing that always that I, you know, cherish the most are those moments when I get to read for the community. Would you read for us? I could, I can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you want, you want me to read a little bit? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, Can you read to... um, Vincent Gimasato's conversation with the kids in the in the car? In the truck? Yeah, that one tends to like a ton of people resonate a great deal. We're like that was like my my dad was like that. Reminded yeah. Me, or that reminded me of my grandpa. You know stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But it's always I love it whenever I go to book. I do readings and I get to um, I get to talk to people afterwards when I'm signing books because they always tell me very intimate connections that they have with the book connections like that. Like that was like, kind of like my dad. Does your mom recognize herself in turtle? I, she has, she has a copy of the hardback and the paperback and even the ARC, the first one. I have not asked her if she's (laughs) ready. Yeah. I'm kind of scared. She probably wrote a journal about it. She probably does. She probably did. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna start. It's right before he picks up the boys. Vincent Gimasaddle is um his daughter Turtle and Lila Gimasaddle. They had asked Vincent, "Can you to pick up his grandkids from school after school?" Because normally Turtle did, but um, Turtle's husband Eduardo he um had kidney failure, so he's she was in Oklahoma City and she was tending to her husband, and so so he, Vincent's job was to um, go pick up the boys, his two grandsons from his two different two daughters, and then care for them until Lila got off of work. So they're kind of like juggling schedules, you know, like Turtle watches the kids for Lila and Lila watches the kids for Turtle. And so, but then, you know, because something happened, now Vincent has to come in, he's going to help out, you know, just like a lot of our families do, do that kind of thing to help each other out. So I'm going to start reading, and this is right before he picks up his grandsons, Evergima Saddle and Quentin Quito. The day after Eduardo was transported to Oklahoma City was my first chance to make up for lost time. I pulled into the car line in front of Roosevelt Elementary School. As my Apache truck stuttered and sputtered in idle, I looked at the crowd of kids streaming out of the front door. Ever and Quinton walked out together, shoulder to shoulder, like half boys. One of the teachers walked over and asked me, who are you here for? My grandsons. I told her, and the sound of those words coming out of my mouth nearly choked me up. 
Are you ever in Quentin's grandfather? She asked and didn't wait for me to answer. They've been talking about you all day. This is my grandpa, Ever yelled to the teacher, and she chuckled at his enthusiasm. The boys jumped into my truck and sat right next to me. I couldn't help but stare at them for a moment. Maybe I was trying to create a memory, something I could hold on onto after they left. Or maybe I was trying to create a memory for them, something they could hold on to after I left. But they appeared so tiny sitting there. They looked up at me with the same eyes. I looked for myself in their faces and lost myself for a moment. Thank you, Grandpa, the teacher called out, more to get me moving. I shifted the truck into drive and pulled away from the school. Look what followed me from the freezer, I said, pointing at two push-ups on the seat. They yelled and ever snatched up the push-ups, handing one to Quentin as they worked on their treats. I drove over to Maddie Bell Park. It was only a few blocks from the school and about a block from my house. We sat in the truck as they in the truck as they slowly pushed the sherbet up and licked off, licked off the top. I want to ask you boys something, I said. Okay, they said in unison. What tribe are you? What's that, Ever asked. Quentin just kept tearing into his sherbet. Your grandpa is Kiowa, I said. That's my tribe. So that means you're Kiowa. Is that like an Indian? Quentin asked. His lips turned more and more orange. Yes, Kiowa is a kind of an Indian, I told them. My mom is a Cherokee, Ever said, and Quentin quickly echoed, My mom is too. Your moms are Kiowa and Cherokee, I explained to them. And I knew at this point I was in a losing battle, but old men like to be right, so I asked them, Did you know your moms are my daughters? They didn't seem to care. Their focus was on the orange sherbet. Have you guys been to a gort dance? I asked them. Do you know what that is? Some of the older kids at school like to break dance, Ever said. They saw it in a movie. I don't know what that is, I told them, but a gort dance is for Kiowas. The kids at school wear parachute pants, Quentin said. I guess it helps them break when they dance. Kiowas always wear red on the left, I told them, and I wanted to teach them about their culture. I knew Turtle and Lila were always busy with work. I didn't know how much time they spent at the gort dances. What color do Cherokees wear, Ever asked. Cherokees don't have a color. Mom is not going to like that, Quentin added. No, I mean in gort dances, there are two colors, red for Kiowa and blue for Comanche. My dad's a Comanche, Quentin said. He was almost to the end of his popsicle. Your dad is Kiowa and Comanche, I told Quentin. Do Mexicans have a color? Ever asked. No, Mexicans don't have a color. How come I saw three colors on a big blanket at my house? Ever asked. Red, white, and green. That was a flag, Ever. What about Indians? Quentin asked. What color do Indians have? My favorite color is blue, Ever said, and Quentin echoed, me too. It was odd how easily these little boys defeated an old man. I squeezed my grip on the steering wheel and shook my head. I've always had a full head of black hair, but I swear it could have all turned gray after talking to them boys about being Kiowa. All I had left in me was to bark at them. Aren't you done with those push-ups yet? Hurry up and go play. That's Vincent. <laughs> 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 Yeah. <laughs>
favorite parts. <laughs> yeah, no, it was definitely. Super fun. super fun writing that. And that came out pretty organically. Like it, I don't think I revised any any part of that at all. It just came out just like that first time. It sounds they're like you've had that conversation. conversation with your littles. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's like they're flying by each other in the conversation or something. Just yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I have you know like I have six kids. And so I've had many, you know, when they're little like that, when they're five years old, four or five years old, and I have a six-year-old right now, my youngest is six, but, um, but she's, um, she's super sharp. So she catches everything. Um, but you know, like when they're four or five years old, there's that, you know, where you're trying to explain things to them and they don't quite get it, you know, so yeah. that's kind of, that's kind of where they're at. <laughs> his heart, well, his heart was, wasn't, you know. was in the right place, but he was a little too, a little too early, probably. <laughs> yeah well and the part where he's trying to make a memory for him or give them a memory oh my gosh that gets me every time yeah yeah do you think that you might want to revisit these characters or ha have you sent them on their way um i think i've sent them i think i've sent them on their way i think that this is going to be it for them i mean you might caps you know i mean they're you know right from you know Tahlequah, Lawton, and cherokee kiowa so you might get some in future books some essences of their personalities from the community so so similar types of personalities probably will show up later uh, but that, those specific characters are probably you know like that i think this is going to be it well i'll was... echo what candace said and say that i didn't want to read it i was afraid it was going to trot out the trauma and i was just thrilled to find something that I want to read over and over again. The thing for me was that, you know, like it's important to talk about issues like we definitely have, like I work in Indian child welfare. I've worked with that risk use for so long, but that, you know, so I see all the time, we all do in the community, in our own families, like issues with certain types of addiction, whether it be alcohol or meth. And now, you know, the big thing is fentanyl is starting to become a big issue in our community. So it's important to talk about those things. You know, you definitely want to do that. Um, but I feel I felt like if I'm going to uh, I want to talk about them, I want to address them in the community, but also want to do it on the upswing. So like Vincent Guimasato, def, you know, he deals with alcoholism or has prior to when he starts talking. And but he's has he's altering himself. You know what I mean? Like he's changing his behavior because he's realizing like, oh, what am I what, what am I leaving my grandbabies? And there's that moment when he's at the gourd dance, he's trying to teach him, like he's telling him right there in that particular passage we read, but then at the gourd dance, he's like showing him like, okay, so you hold your gourd here, you know, this is the sash and that, that pattern is Kiowa, that pattern is Comanche, like he's telling him he's at the gourd dance, teaching him, and then he's a war veteran. And so Vincent's um, based off of my grandfather, Virgil, um, Virgil Hokey, and he is, um, my grandfather was in, was in the Korean War. Um, and so just like Vincent, so Vincent's at the powwow and he's like trying to teach his grandsons. And then, you know, one of his old battle buddies sees him and is like, oh, I'm, and they call him up. And like, Vincent, you must have come into the arena. We're going to honor you. Everyone come out here, honor this veteran. Um, and so he's kind of caught off guard. He was just there to teach him about the dance. He didn't know he was going to get called into the arena. And then, you know, Quentin goes, did you win? You know, like he's, you know, goofy little guy. But and so they go out into the arena. And then, so he's just caught off a guard on what everything's going on. They hand him the gourd um, and they, you know, they, and so they start dancing. So he just starts, they start playing the song and he's dancing and he doesn't realize his grandsons are right next to him. And, um, 
and they're dancing like him. They're he said he didn't explain nothing. He didn't explain a single thing. He just got out there and started dancing. And he looks down and he's like, my, my grandbabies are doing exactly what I'm doing. And it was this moment of hope. And then all of a sudden he got scared. You know what I mean? Like they're going to fall. They're going to do what I do. And if I don't, if I don't stop drinking, if I don't stop doing these, these things that are negative, then they're going to follow my footsteps. And I don't even have to tell them. They're just going to do it. You know, he's, he's in the progress of changing. And that's a part of that dynamic at the end of that particular chapter that is, um, you know, I don't know how to describe it, but it's, you know, it has a heartbreaking element to it, but um, that he, you know, he is, he has changed and you can see the real change in him, but it was, you know, before, like it was a moment too late, you know what I mean? Or maybe it was just in time. We don't know. Maybe it was just in time. And so we see how Ever Gimisella picks up that baton. He carries the relay race forward, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to take over from here, grandpa. And I'm going to, I'm going to change. And so we see that play out in the book, but no, that's, yeah, the super yeah, powerful, pow a lot of powerful moments in the, in the novel. And oh yeah, that, that we were on the process of changing so that, you know, like even with like Leander Chestnut, who's super aggressive, you know, like he's a, um, like a gang leader type of aggressive. Like he's not only done a lot of terrible things himself, but he sent other people out to do terrible things. And so we would, what changes him? You know, like he's in this flux. So if we're going to talk about these issues, like with gangs, drugs, whatever it might be, domestic violence, Turtle Gima settles coping and she's she's learning how to deal with the domestic violence she was exposed to in that moment. She's changed. And so I think that that's important. So how did you come up with the title? I mean, there's so many choices and not everybody understands what a blanket dance is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the um, calling for a blanket dance, it's basically just you know, pulled right out of, you know, our rituals, like the, the entire structure of the novel is the ritual of a blanket dance. Like, and we all know, like when you, you, know, you do a blanket dance, you walk up to the blanket, you drop a dollar down or five, whatever you got. And um, so in essence, what this book is, is each family member stepping up to the edge of the blanket and offering ever Gima saddle, like, I'm going to offer you this nephew, I'm going to offer you this son or cousin, you know, who or brother, you know, I'm going to offer this to you. But, you know, uh, ultimately, it's up to Evergimasado himself that he has to change. You know, he has to make the choice, and so we get that later on in the novel as we see has we see the transformation start to happen. But so the entire structure is, you know, like grandma comes up, grandpa, aunties, uncles, at the powwows. That's what you know. We'll, that's what we'll say when we're getting ready to honor someone. You know, I'm calling for a blanket dance. You know, Vincent Gimasado, he's a war veteran. You know, come up here and honor him. You know, so those kinds of things. You know, we we that's a terminology that we use and it's very specific to powwow culture um so i wanted to use that kind of specificity for the title i wanted to ask you about the timeline mm -hmm. when i was reading it i actually listened to it and i was thinking maybe i need to read it because i was confused like i was like oh wait we just moved ahead mm -hmm. and you were mentioning like whether or not it was linear and and things like that and i didn't i what it didn't upset me or anything it was just I was like suddenly like okay we're in another circumstance or, or mm -hmm. things like that but I was I was curious if like when you had like non-native folks giving you feedback and stuff if they were upset that we didn't get to know every single detail of the timeline and and all oh, that yeah. um no they I mean they asked me like why you know my choices like why did I decide to do 
that particular style of jumping four or five years between each chapter. And so one of the things that, you know, I've learned working with youth is that, especially when you stay, stay in it for so long, you have one, you have to believe that people can change and you have to realize that it takes time. You know what I mean? Like, so in order for me to really capture the essence of decolonization and the process of changing and healing that we need to do, it's going to, it's not something that, you know, I'm going to, we're going to go do workshop, decolonization workshop. When we leave, we're all good. You know, it's not like that. You know, it takes a lot of time, a, a lot of re, re uh, processing and just kind of revisiting different aspects of our own personal lives. We have the first chapter where we see the trauma happen. And then we see how it reverberates. So it shows up when he's five. It shows up when he's, he's he, when he's 11, when he's 14, when he's 18. This trauma over time, it's different, but it, it's still in him. And it shows up, he gets more and more aggressive. So in Quentin Quiton's chapter, Quentin Quiton's silly. You know, he's goofing around. But Evergy Masato is mean. Like, he's rough. Like, he says mean things. And he's he, 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 he likes to fight. And he and there's a, there's a scene in there where he he pins somebody on the back of a car and starts working them over. Um, he's pretty aggressive, and so that trauma that's that trauma showing back up again over and over until we get to a point where where he has you know kind of hit rock bottom and he has to decide like you know what what's going to bring him out of it, and then that's where we get Turtle Game of Saddle comes in and that kind of transforms him and makes him into a better father into a better human being. Um, and so in order to capture that, the fullness of that dynamic, I would have to move through almost an entire lifetime. And so jumping through these different years, seeing how the trauma shows up differently at different times um, and then showing what the healing process looks like whenever he's guiding Leander Chestnut, he's saying, oh, let's do it like this. When you get pissed off, I want you to draw. And then Leander starts drawing. And then a the couple of chapters later, Leander's talking to his, his um, other son, Right. He's talking to the second oldest of his kids and he's like, who's getting aggressive? And then Leander Chestnut, then he echoes the same words Evergima Saddle said, when you get pissed off, I want you to draw. And so that's how healing works. That's how it reverberates from generation to generation. But that wouldn't have started if Evergima Saddle didn't didn't take that first step. But yeah, it just takes a long period of time. And um, and I felt like that was a good way to capture it. Yeah. Well, we're coming up on a little over an hour mark. And I just want to invite everyone, final thoughts, what is ahead for you and uh, what are, you know, what, what's next uh, upcoming projects that you're allowed to maybe give us a preview of and. Yeah. So book two, you know, I'm working on it. So revising it, uh, my editors looked at it and gave me feedback. And so now I'm working on my end of it. And then after I get done with that round, then I'll send it back to her. We'll probably go back and forth a little bit. Um, I'm not sure how long that process take is going to take. Last time it took a year. I would imagine probably sometime in 2024, it'll all get finished up and ready to, you know, put a date down on it. Um, so that's coming up and on my social media. So, but my, you know, my social media, I definitely post like this is, you know, I'm working on this, we're working on that. But the first draft of a third book I've already written as well. I wrote that in 2021. And so that's sitting on the flash drive, kind of resting while I work on this, the book that I'm working on now. Once I turn that over to the editor, I'll go back to book three and I'll start re revising on that. And so I'll just go back and forth between book two and book three as um, I go back and forth with my editor. And so those are, you know, coming down the line and um, I'll keep people posted. And I've just been doing book events, you know, just going to different places. You know, I've been 
to a lot of places around the United States, which has been a lot of fun. I'm trying to think of what I'm, where I'm going. In 2024, I'm going to Colorado a couple of times, and I think I'm going to Georgia. And so far, in 20, I'm booking 2024 right now. What advice do you have for budding writers? Man, there's so much. There's so much. I'll get, let me try to figure out something something that'll there's a lot of advice you know, I love to give but you know stay the course for sure just reflect on the writing process compare it to every moment in your day and so that's what that's a lot of what I do is all you know like I'm pretty quiet you know to myself and uh, so a lot of times what I'm thinking about is just something something that's happening in the storyline like as I interact with uh, you know something maybe at my kid's school or maybe at work whatever it might be I'm always comparing and contrasting Every um, scenario that's happening in your novel or whatever you're working on right now, it's going to play out in the course of your day. There's going to be something similar to it, you know, because we are we are on repeat. We repeat the same behaviors over and over and over again every day. And so you're going to see a moment in your day that's going to be like, that's what I need to write. That's that's that scene. And so if you stay aware all day long and habituate yourself to it. And it takes time to kind of get used to doing that. Um, then you'll be able to kind of fill in those gaps or get over any kind of um, parts that you might get stuck on. And what are you reading or consuming or listening to that's inspiring you right now? Um, there's a couple of books that I've read this year that I really, I'm in a council of dolls by Susan, uh, by Mona power, my Mona Susan power. That one is really intense i don't know if you guys have read it yet but it's called the council of dolls and um so it was long listed for the national book award but yeah super excited about that one love that book and then there's another book called the new naturals by gabriel bump that is like you know just very interesting in its structure and um so it's about a, a group of people who um, are fed up with the world and want to create their own environment to create a utopia like we're going to go, we're going to move off together into this area and we're going to create this utopian society. And then so all kinds of stuff start start to go awry when they do that. Um, but it's super fascinating. Just the way Gabriel writes, his style of writing is fascinating, very hypnotic. His voice is very hypnotic. Like, um, you know, you, you'll read through, um, it's almost like a cadence, you know, like there's some repetition in there and you get into this cadence and then you're like, through 20 pages and you're like wow i just you know i got hypnotized going through those 20 pages yeah so those are the i guess the two most recent books that i've read that have that have been pretty pretty awesome well i just want to say thank you for coming on and thank you for your time and for sharing with us and for reading uh from your book with us and um i i suppose my final thought is uh yeah i want to thank you for that because i feel like uh a lot of times when i'm uh, read a, a book by a native author sometimes a lot of times I feel like the author is usually coming from a reconnecting point of view and that mm. is valid and it is needed you know but that's not all there is mm -hmm. and so yeah. I want to thank you for writing from you know I'm that's not me I'm I'm not reconnecting I'm here I feel like mm -hmm. we struggle more to be seen not reconnect yeah, yeah. those of us who are from our communities and so I'm, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for being, being a voice for that too. And, and adding your voice to the, to the canon, to the native literature canon. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I was very grateful to be a part of a real indigenous podcast. You know, I'm a big fan 
So whenever whenever I got that email, I emailed really quick. Yeah, I did. <laughs> like with probably like forty five seconds. So thank That's you. That's good to know. Time. Thanks. We're <laughs> yeah, we're flattered. Yeah, <laughs> very flattered. Sorry, I was late. That's okay. I, uh, oh no, that's fine. I was trying to drive on a bent rim, completely flat tire. Just oh this. my goodness! I was just like, oh, this is not happening right now. I can't believe this. So no, I think that fits in with the, tonight's theme very well. Yeah. Does yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. When I think when, whenever someone says flat tire, I always think of my cousin Quincy, who Quinton's based off of. But so one time Quincy was, you know, like the view. I don't know if you guys been to Lawton. So the view is like a, a Lawton's kind of a poor type city. So the view is like the, you know, it's a pretty rough area. So I guess his truck had broke down, but his cousin had a 10 speed bike and he was like, well, hey, let me use that 10 speed. And so he was riding that 10 speed for about a week. And he would go, his cousin, his brother lived, you know, on the other side, just outside of the view on the, you know, probably like 12, 14 blocks away. And so he would, you know, you know, maybe every day, every other day, he would ride that 10 speed bike over there. But um, so he went over there one day and it was late at night and it was time to go back. So he was like, okay, well, I'm going to head out. And so he, you know, he's on the other side of the view. And um, so the thing about the view is that, you know, like every other house has a pit bull. So there's always like random random pit bulls and rottweilers just kind of cruising around um so he's cruising back on the 10 speed and it's an old 10 speed you know it's like handlebars are ragged you know the tires are dusty you know the seats kind of tore up a little bit but you know he's like cruising through the view you know heading back to the house and then all of a sudden you know he hears this dog start barking at him and he looks back and it's a pit bull and it's probably you know like a little more than a block away so he's like, oh crap. So he starts speaking, he's taking off as fast as he can on that on this 10 speed, you know. Then all of a sudden the back tire went flat. But this pit bull was like, you know, running at him. So he's like, oh crap. He just keeps going. He's like riding on a flat tire. He just keeps going. <laughs> and then he gets, but he gets like ahead of it, you know, because he's going as fast as he can because he's freaking out on this pit bull. And he gets maybe a block ahead of it. And then the front tire goes flat. He's got two flat tires on a 10 speed bike. And he's like, oh shit, this this pit is gonna get me. You know, he was like booking it on the on busted up rims and he, he got away. <laughs> oh shoot. I always think of that every time someone says about flat tire. Just imagine my cousin booking it through, you know, you on a 10 speed busted up tires. Pitbull chasing him down. <laughs> I just want to say thank you and thank you so much for tuning in and listening to our conversation with Oscar. Be on the lookout for his upcoming projects and you can follow him on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and maybe TikTok too. So <laughs> until that time, we want you to keep it real indigenous. <laughs> I messed what? it up. We always mess it up. Don't <laughs> just keep it real. Yeah, we don't, don't just keep it real. real. We keep it real, real indigenous. indigenous. Oh my god. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs>